0: Welcome to Episode 18 of the Mindful Wealth Podcast. In this recap of season one, Jonathan and I talk about some of the things that we discussed with our guests. We go over some highlights and some of the things that really changed the perspectives that we have, and we get into some of the disconnects and the contradictions that there seem to be between what the guests have to say. Because the people we interviewed come from such different walks of life, sometimes the narratives that they have are kind of working at different levels. And so what we try to do is span some of these gaps and think about how we can come up with a more integrated version of what true wealth might look like. Please enjoy the conversation. Welcome to the Mindful Wealth Podcast. Stop financializing everything. What is true wealth? What's the right metric for success? Much of how we live presupposes that our incomes or spending is a good measuring stick. But can you really quantify success with a bank balance? Or should we include softer things like learning and love Generosity and gratitude, and happiness and well-being.
1: Welcome to the uh, season one recap of the Mindful Wealth podcast. Uh, I'm excited to actually have this conversation with Terry because we're going to go through some of the episodes that we've had uh, and talk about some of the disconnects and some of the issues that we run across. Um, and just just to kick it off, I'm going to say, Terry, you know, you actually started with a with a nice um, uh, schematic of. Some of the things we should talk about so i'm going to ask you this is not a softball to start with i don't want to do that um but what are, what are some of the discursive gaps or disconnects that we saw you know in some of the interviews we had or even or even between some of the interviews that we had
0: yeah well i found for me what was very interesting is that it seems like the guests we had on a lot of them were kind of talking at two different levels and i feel like we had um you know mark Blythe and uh karen ho on who are looking more at like the economic structures and the way in which basically the activities that we're doing in society are producing systemic inequality. And so I think there's some like very interesting stuff there. And then I think it's, it's it was interesting to me how at another level, um, you know, people like Bob Berg um, were kind of more on this idea that uh, a rising tide lift all lifts all ships. So kind of this idea that as we all go about our entrepreneurial activities, and as we all kind of try to better ourselves, there's this idea that that's eventually going to make everyone's lives lives better. And for me, it just struck me as, as so fascinating how there are kind of these two narratives that are working at cross purposes. And when you engage with one of them, it sounds true. So if you have a conversation with somebody who's like kind of a free market proponent, the minute you start talking about how, you know, when we look at bettering ourselves, how that betters the world around us, like, I'm like, yeah, I'm very convinced of that. And then, you know, we have an episode with with Mark or with Karen, and they make it so clear how some of the stuff we're doing is creating problems for people. And you're like, yeah, that's so true. But how can those both, those two things be true at the same time? And like, you know, for me, that was just very interesting.
1: Yeah, I I have a couple of thoughts. I think that, you know, and, I, and I do come from, actually, I kind of come from both angles on this, but I, I think that history and, and um, different political systems employing different economic systems, um, I think we sort of determined that a rising tide does lift all ships. And I think the issue is it doesn't lift them equally. And so the question is, you know, do you, is it a trade-off? And I love what Karen Ho was talking about, saying that there were some choices and those choices that we make from a from a political perspective, from a, from a taxation perspective, from a, a policy perspective, um, those choices largely determine both group outcomes, well, determine group outcomes sometimes, um, but also determine less individual outcomes. So I think the actual, the question simply stated is, you know, to, to what extent do individuals determine their own outcomes versus structures determining outcomes? And what I find so fascinating is so many of the different people that we spoke to came down on different sides.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I guess, you know, what, what I would be curious about as like we move into the next season is, is there a way in which we can bridge the gap between those two things? Because, you know, I think that especially like in entrepreneurial circles or, or people who are like on a quest to increase their personal wealth, I think that more of us are want to do it in a way that's socially responsible. But it might be that we kind of don't know how. And so I guess, you know, for me, it's just interesting to know how can you kind of make sure that whatever you're practicing personally is not creating destruction on a larger level, you know?
1: Yeah. So I'm just just going back to some of the episodes. So like you said, there are many. I think the examples are um, Bob Berg, uh, Mac Lackey, Mike Brodsky, and to some extent, uh, Michael Pompian. Tom Shea and maybe maybe Arno Ilgner falls in this as well, who sort of believe that in that uh, you make your own luck, you build your own wealth. And then the other ones you mentioned were Mark Blythe and Karen Ho. And I think actually to some extent, uh, if you listen to Bob Seawright and Gary Ray, they actually believe that there's structural challenges that need to be addressed to enable more people to make their own luck. In other words, there's some that believe that luck plays a much larger role uh, than we want to admit. And it kind of comes down to... Um, this, well there's this thought I keep having uh, and its it just seems to me that the people who are saying you make your own luck are already successful and make your own luck becomes a euphemism for you know work hard and you're going to be successful and so they're sort of patting themselves on the back a little bit and those who are saying that there are systematic, sy- systemic issues are often either academics who are studying people who haven't been as lucky or they're those people themselves who haven't been as lucky so in a nutshell it's like we're looking at human nature. So when we are successful, we claim we are the source of our success. When we are not successful or when we fail, we blame, blame circumstances or others for the failures. Uh, and I find that really interesting. I find that sort of, you know, uh, when you think about the biases, there's a whole lot of overconfidence in there. And then there's, there's this uh, attribution bias to what do we owe our success. And luck just gets just gets tossed out in that whole conversation.
0: Yeah, no, I think you're very right. Like, I remember having this conversation when, like, when I was a you know an undergrad, my, my I had a friend who was studying psychology, and like, I think it's called the fundamental attribution error, where people who are uh, succeeding at something tend to say that it's as a result of their behavior, whereas people who when they fail at something try to you know look for kind of you know excuses or, or maybe more systemic or outside reasons for why that happens. But I mean, if that's true, that kind of begs the question that can you kind of reverse engineer that? I mean. In a sense, you know, people say, uh, if you force yourself to smile, you will find that your mood becomes better. Does that mean that if you force yourself to take responsibility for things, ultimately you have a better chance at being successful at something? I, I know that's certainly been my experience,
1: but- Or, or even, even more, I mean, this is the, what I keep thinking about is, is in a, the more we talk about systemic inequality or the more that we talk about, um, the more we tell a certain group of people whatever group it is that they can't be successful because of XYZ, does that actually hurt their chances of being successful? So are we working at cross purposes by focusing so much on um, groups or individuals or people that say they can't, I can't do it, I can't do it, I can't do it. If If we're just... Continually focusing on that and, and how we all have to you know come together and and lift up the people that are least among us and, and um, You know this is that's my Midwest my Midwest, you know South Dakota upbringing is like yeah, it, you know, we, we were poor you had to work hard you had to overcome and and we were just that's what we were told so when I bring it into my own world I tend to fall on one side of those two and it did work for me, but how do I how do I factor in luck? like how do I know? How much luck had to do with my own success? It's there's no way to tell. There's no way I can analyze that, and that's impossible.
0: No, there's no, I mean, no, there's no way. <laughs> there's no way to tell.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I, I certainly want to take I, I certainly want to take more credit, right? I certainly want to say, that, oh yeah, I was successful, and that's because of how hard I worked and how smart I am, and my uh, you know my the, how hard I worked in education and and how the good grades I got and and, and the people I, you know, developed relationships with and, and it's, you know, it's all me, but I, I know that's not true. And humility demands, I know that's not true. And so I have to admit some luck. And and the minute I admit luck, there's a systemic issue.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, but if we like push this a little bit uh, further, was there, were there, was there another place where you found that there were kind of, you know, disconnects or, or like kind of ideas that you want to, Try to wedge us into in the upcoming season.
1: I mean, I I actually want to get more specific with some of Karen, uh, Mark Blythe, and Karen Ho. I both I both of those two made me question my priors, question my my thinking, um, which is that's hard to do. Like I'm very, <laughs> my, my wife says that I I am the who moved my cheese kind of guy. If you change things for me, it, it sort of sends me off on a on a spin. Um, so so K- Karen Ho made this made the comment multiple times about when you think about how systems are created, so you get a system like Canada or a system like the US, systems that exist in South America or Northern Europe, they make a series of choices that end up with outcomes. And, you know, in the US, we are unquestionably wealthy. We have ridiculous volumes of wealth in the US, but we also have a greater inequality. And so there's a choice in that. And I would like to go deeper on what are the choices that we're making and sort of provide some light into some of the unquestioned choices. Um, and I think that there's choices that we're questioning. Like there's, there's, I mean, right now, Biden is Biden, and the Democrats are trying to push through um, uh, Build Back Better. And Build Back Better is a shift in what and how we think about how we spend money socially and and where we tax. That's a change. Now, 15 years ago, I would have said, I'm opposed, like I'm against it, period. Hands down, no questions. Probably five years ago, I started asking questions. When I started to get more successful, I started thinking, well, and I, you know, I continue reading the luck factors. I continue reading about this and I go, well, there's nothing really special about me. Like I, I work really hard and I do all those things. I do take some credit, but I know lots of other people that do the same thing. So I really want to know, what are the, what are the policy choices we're making That actually end in these different places and with the vitriol coming from both sides of the aisle it's very difficult it's very difficult to figure out what are the real you know academic evidence-based policy choices because everyone you talk to is talking their book
0: Mm -hmm. but you know i wonder uh, like this goes right back to you know the very beginning of this season um when we interviewed uh oh gosh am i gonna like have a blank on his name now um the media guy
1: uh lance noble
0: Lance Noble. There you go. Um, you know when we when we talk about the uh, way in which our media scape has shifted with the advent of you know social media, and like I was having a conversation this morning about the fact that it's been only ten years we have smartphones. So you know, and and that there's a kind of a discussion now of whether is it like a kind of a fait accompli that when you run so much of social discourse through the lens of social media, like is it kind of inevitable that we end up with these you know, very polarized echo chambers where, you know, people kind of go off on their own tangents and and a, a more cohesive discourse becomes, you know, difficult. And I think that one of there's one thing is economic policy. And then maybe, you know, the ideology that like, underscores that. Um, and then there's the question of, of just the fact that society becomes more fractitious when you filter it through the lens of, of you know, these social media communications means that we have.
1: Yeah, and it's not and it's, and part of it is not just, you know, benign self-selection. It's also intentional, you know, motivating discourse. It's it's somebody is out there, you know, pulling the levers and, and saying, here, you should read this. I mean, it blows my mind the stuff that ends up in my you should read this Twitter feed. Like it's stuff that I completely disagree with. And yet it's highlighted and brought to my attention. And I don't know if it's, I don't, I must have clicked on something. I must have clicked on something at some point years ago that, that now brings this stuff to light. And I, I read, I'm like, what the heck is this? Um, but it happens a lot.
0: Well, and I so- don't know. Like for this, we'd have to get like, you know, one of the, the deep um deep mind guys from Twitter over, but like who knows, maybe there's a kind of a straw man outrage algorithm at work that like serves you things that you find ridiculous because they know it's going to capture your attention. Like it for sure works for me. Like whenever I see something ridiculous that's like so ridiculous, like I I I like I'm tempted to look at it just because it's ridiculous. So
1: but if you see, if you see it many, many, many times, does it normalize in your head, even though at the outset it's so ridiculous? Not at all. <laughs> you're never, you're never like even remotely convinced.
0: Well, because, I mean, like, look, again, like, you know, I I think maybe we're not the, you know, not the the foremost experts on this, but like, just anecdotally, like, if there was less of a straw man version of something, like take vaccine hesitancy, okay? Like here, there's like a, a, like a very big divide on people who are like pro-vax and anti-vax, right? Oh, really?
1: Just in Canada? That's not in the US at all. Yeah, it doesn't happen. (laughs)
0: It's the same worldwide, right? But, but like that, I think if, if you hear like a well thought out argument For either point of view, you can be like, huh, yeah, okay, I can see how that makes sense, right? Like, there have been bad outcomes from vaccines. And, like, you know, whatever, I just made the, I have a five-year-old that just made the decision to vaccinate him. But, like, that was two weeks of Googling and, like, looking up all the studies in Israel to make sure that, like, five-year-olds are not having adverse reactions. And there is, like, some, you know, there is some data out there that makes you think twice as a mom. Like, so if you hear a good version of an argument, it's not the same thing as hearing like a straw man argument of like somebody crazy who's like, you know, doesn't want to vaccinate their their kids against anything, right? So I think there's a you know a way in which social media like kind of accentuates these fringe opinions where it becomes very obvious when it's like contrary to what you think, as opposed to like a well thought out, well argued opposing opinion.
1: And um, How, what do you? I mean, what do you think about? And this just it just dawns on me that there's another piece of this, and that's the media got way ahead of our ability to understand the media. Like, so, so we're now getting served headlines that we have self-selected or they're just being served to us because of some algorithm. And we've never learned how to filter that. And so I wonder if that's an education catch-up. Um, and again, maybe that's a Lance Noble question more than anything else. But it's, it's it seems like we could go a little bit deeper on our sources of information and how we, how we build our worldviews uh and then and then that obviously brings in all the psychology of then when we're introduced with new information how do we change opinions um so there's a lot of psychology we could talk to a few psychologists in the next season
0: yeah and i, I definitely think like you know um that's something that mark blythe gets into a bit with nomics, right like i think there's an economics aspect to nomics, but then you know his i think his co-author um maybe t- tries to bring in a little bit more of like how does that tie into populism and you know how does like economic discontent ends up being the backdrop of like a lot of political instability, but like information systems play in there as well, because, you know, you can do all sorts of things with with propaganda or like free media can accentuate all other kinds of things. And so, no, definitely. I think that that, uh, that's a good uh, thread to pull on for the next season.
1: What about, and what about, uh, uh, and I know that you liked this when it first happened uh, when, when Sonia Liubomirsky, I'll never get that quite right. Sonia Liubomirsky, when she talked about how only ten percent of happiness is attributable to sort of wealth or material uh, material be- material well being, I think that's fascinating because I think we spend about ninety percent of our time comparing wealth and comparing our financial ability, um, and that's really not the core of happiness. It's not the core of well being, and so so really peeling that back, I think would be important as well. Uh, because and then and then tying Sonia to Gary Ray. Gary, you know, went from, I don't remember what it was, 18 years ago, you know, being a, a, a tech, well, I know it'd be like, it'd be like, this is .com. So This 20, 21, 22 years ago, he was working in tech companies in the .com era. And so if you worked in tech companies in the .com era, you basically got paid ridiculous amounts of money. And he said he didn't work very hard, but he hated it. And then he started working, you know, he opened this retail game store. Um, he had conversations with himself about what he wanted and what was important, what became enough Him and when he got closer to enough and he really identified what it was, he got closer to that well being. And it wasn't financial because he made less money, he makes less money probably today than he did 22 years ago. But he's happier, he's closer to his son, he is you know more well adjusted, he's doing the things he loves. And that's well being. Like, that's it's amazing to me how once you get out, if you can step out of that, I'm measuring myself by my bank account, or I'm measuring myself by the size of my vacation. And, get, and, and start measuring yourself by what's important to you, which Gary has obviously done, um, uh, happiness and well-being is easier. You're more connected, which is, I think, what Sonia was talking about. I should say Dr. Yeah, <laughs> but
0: uh, at the risk of going a bit off, off script here, uh, Jonathan, I'm curious, like, ha- have any of these interviews uh, affected the way that you do things personally?
1: Wow, seriously, you're just going to go there. Oh, why not? Why? Not? Of course, of course, of course. So I, I, I mean, I'd say not yet. I mean, I, I. One of the things I do is I, as I cogitate, I, I bring it in and I think about it and I think about it and I think about it and then it slowly seeps into life action, um, you know, and you know, you know this. I've gone through a huge change in my own business, and my change is, is going to be away from my own personal income producing and towards my. Um, educational, my 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 desire to spread financial literacy, and so that's partially stimulated by the conversations with um, uh, Karen and uh, Mark Blythe. Are there are two uh, economists that we got to speak to, uh, and I love those conversations. I think those are very meaningful, and it it really opened my eyes to some of the, I guess, unseen choices and how I'd like to actually repair some of the things that. I want to enable, I want to support, I want to empower rather than talk about, you know, this is why you can't and this is why you can't. That's what I want to find ways that we can and try to educate more people on that um, and get myself out of it a little bit um, because I'm, you know, I'm obviously one of the lucky ones. Uh, so if I can train without me being the center, I think that's a huge
0: positive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I definitely, for me, like the Sonia episode was like a bit of a game changer, you know, like I, I guess uh, I assume that... I don't know maybe like a lot of us assume that the material conditions of our existence are really like what is going to make you like you know sit back at the end of the day and be like oh i'm, I'm pleased with what i did today but the fact of knowing that like actually like some of the things that often get sacrificed when you're like in that head in the trenches kind of yeah. focus on trying to like achieve some external marker of success like you you have it one has a tendency to maybe not do those things that make you feel connected to your community, maybe let some of your relationships suffer, like basically value the things less that in the end end up promoting well-being more. Um so I think I think that you know that that really sunk in for me and it's actually like turned into, you know, uh, a change that's ongoing but that like I definitely want to in 2022 bring more into how I do things.
1: And there's so that's actually there's there's a ton, and one of the reasons I was less moved by that is because I've been reading that for years and years and years and years. Um, but there's a ton of writers and a ton of authors and a ton of academics that are studying that kind of stuff, the importance of connection, the importance of the the misplaced importance on financial well being or financial um, topics uh, as the, at the core of things. And so that we can we can bring some of those on for sure, and we can help you continue on this on this path towards improving life. That can really, that can really what this is about is is really us improving our own lives that's what this is
0: about. <laughs> yes, exactly I mean, um, that,
1: another thing that's actually been impressive to me uh and again i i knew gary before he came on the show um but i just i've always been very impressed with his ability to cut out the crap and i've i've been unable to do that myself like he he cut out cable and, the, and that bill before that was cool before other options were available he said, no, no, I'm just going to rent my DVDs from, I think, Blockbuster at the time. And he he stopped using that. Uh, he cut his his expenses to, you know, incredibly low for the Bay Area. Um, and that was impressive to me always. And he was always still so happy and he's always having a good time. Always, and so the ability to do that was very impressive. And him talking about enough to me was, um, I, I mean, if I could get somewhere. I, I haven't made changes yet, but I'm trying to make those changes. I'm trying to get there for sure. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Uh, I think one of the other things that I guess maybe I want want to pull on, like maybe selfishly, but also uh, because of the industry that I'm in, like, I think there's um, a lot of starting to be some talk in like the financial sector about kind of the stuff that that Karen mentions. Um, I would love to get some housing people on hmm. because I think that, you know, one of the things that I'm aware of as a real estate person, especially like a real estate person who works in a big urban area where there is a fair amount of income distribution is that like the de- the decisions that we as investors make like obviously and landlords obviously directly impact some of the poor families and like you know people who are maybe have a, a bit more of a precarious time um and it you know i don't know what kind of initiatives there are to bridge some of those gaps or to think through some of those those decisions but i think that that's a whole other conversation that if there could be a bit of that voice in the real estate industry i think it would be i think it would be socially very beneficial
1: can can you just pull that thread a little bit more and just get really specific about some of the decisions that you see because i'm I'm less involved in real estate than I once was. so what are the decisions that you have to make that may affect um, your tenants?
0: yeah, well, I mean, for sure, I think uh, especially people who are involved with like let's say middle to lower income housing, which ends up being a lot of landlords, because ultimately who are renters, unless you're renting in like a very, you know, exceptional uh, kind of a pool of of transient people like, you know, university students or whatever. um, I think the pool of renters tends to be more on the low income spectrum. And so then you have, there's basically like two kinds of decisions. One is, um, you know, when somebody ends up in some kind of trouble. So when people end up in financial trouble, Um, then they're not paying their rent or, you know, they're like creating various problems that have to do with other social issues, because like, it's very rare that a tenant wakes up in the morning and just decides to cause problems. Like there are people who have difficult characters, but a lot of the time you can trace it back either to like mental health or addictions or cycles of poverty. Like basically those three things are always manifest in the times when I've had to like go through evictions and, you know, take people to court over rent non-payment and stuff like that. And you know, housing is just such an important like aspect of people's stability that when you invest, you know, in lower income neighborhoods, that ends up becoming part of your everyday, right? Is that you end up having to enforce these things that, you know, put people out of their homes if they aren't able to pay or create like situations of precariousness. But that's kind of the business model that requires you to do that. Right. So I don't know that there's necessarily a quick fix to that, but I think that's one of the the issues that, you know, real estate investors face. I think, The other one is also just in terms of like reasoning, housing reasoning. So it's like scaling that up a little bit. And like, for example, in Montreal, which I'm sure it's happening in a lot of urban centers in the U S as well, we have this whole gentrification thing Yeah. because as you know, real estate is becoming more and more of a commodity and it's an asset class that people are very interested in getting into. And that means that the multiples at which buildings are sold go up. And so buildings become less profitable. And what do you do when business buildings become less profitable? Well, you can increase amenities if you're dealing with a higher income group of people who's willing to pay for more, but if you can't do that, then you have to kind of work at the very minimal level, bring the minimal level up. And then what happens is basically you're getting rid of affordable housing. Right. Right. And so like landlord after landlord, after landlord makes those decisions because that's the economic conditions in which we're acting. Well, basically what you're doing is you're you're making it so that like that whole lower level of people is no longer able to afford a place to live, or a decent place to live.
1: So, there's, so there's two things that just keep running through my head when you're as you're talking about the decisions, and and one of the one of the things is I know that there's some people out there that would say that hey, one of the ways to um, support those people isn't. I mean, it's really not. It'd be great if, as a landlord, you were more compassionate. And but then you've got you've got your own, you know, you've got mortgages to pay, and you've got a you've got a you know when when the roof needs to be replaced, that's kind of that's coming out of your pocket. It's not coming out of tenant's pocket. Um, And so there's definitely issues there. And so many people would go to the idea that, well, we need to provide some kind of a universal basic income or something so that people can afford their rent. Every time I see that argument being made, I wonder what would be the landlord response if people suddenly have more money? Won't rents then go up some?
0: I mean, you know I I don't know I, I when it comes down to it like I, I'm you know a, a professional in the real estate industry I'm not a, an academic who has studied housing and studied the way that different like economies structure housing because there are different models. Yeah. Um, I know like I've read for example I think it's Denmark it's one Scandinavian country where like almost half of the housing is social housing hmm. and so there's basically no stigma attached to it and people are even allowed to stay there like, once they move beyond the minimum level and so what that does is it creates these kind of mixed communities um and you know allows there to be less of cycles of poverty and stuff like that so i know there are different models and like let's say in in, in montreal like we have a, a very rent control model um and so there's the market it's not a, like a perfect market in the sense okay. that there's this whole segment of, of you know the assets that are rent controlled and then one of the business models is to just break the rent control like through various you know manipulations or renovations or whatever and basically work around it um
1: so so i mean it's i mean one of the one of the potential guests would be like uh, a housing economist or somebody that looks at that, that knows the system in Denmark and knows the system in Canada and knows the system in the U S and, and kind of can, can walk us through some of those trade-offs. Yeah. We find that person. That'd be good. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Or like who can, like, like somebody must've studied what the, the way in which rent control affects people, right. Or, oh, yeah. or, or deregulating housing. And to see yeah. like which one of those is actually a better policy or like, how do you intervene in social housing to, you know, make sure that it's not, kind of this repository of extreme poverty, which, like, you know, that that's one of the critiques that gets leveled at the way our system works here is that we do have, you know, I guess it's like, I'm not sure if it's, a, it's a, like low income housing that's subsidized by the state. And, you know, there's a certain amount of fraud of who gets in there, but then even those type of communities, like they're not exactly communities that help people attain their way out of that, right? Like it ends up contributing to to kind of a, a cycle of poverty. And so even though you might be helping people's housing need in the short term, it's not ultimately creating a society that necessarily works better for people. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Please join us in two weeks time for part two of the season one recap.